Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by my friend, Dr. Raul Hinojosa Ojeda. Dr. Hinojosa Ojeda is an associate professor at the UCLA Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies and the founding director of the North American Integration Development Center at UCLA. He's authored numerous articles and books on the political economy of regional integration around the world, including works on trade investment in migration relations in the U.S., Mexico, Latin America, and the Pacific Rim. Dr. Hinojosas Ojeda's most recent book, The Trump Paradox, Migration, Trade, and Racial Politics in U.S.-Mexico Integration, discusses the complex dynamics of trade and immigration between the United States and Latin America, and in particular, Mexico. The book explores the rise of Donald Trump and anti-immigration rhetoric, despite the critical role of Latinos to the U.S. economy. Raul, thanks for being on today. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you, and it's great to have a chance to talk about your book, which is called The Trump Paradox. Thank you. No, it's fantastic to see you, and uh, I'm glad you're doing these podcasts from a great perch at CSIS. So looking forward to this conversation with you. Well, thanks, my friend. So I met you six or seven years ago because I got really interested in why are people migrating from Central America? My wife's from Argentina, and some of those kids that got on those trains looked like my kids. And I thought, what would prompt me to put my kid on one of those trains? And so I went to the three countries in Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, and and Salvador, they're called the Northern Triangle, but it's sort of a construct. In my kind of my wanderings and my interviews, I met you, And we've stayed in touch on a number of different issues. And you've written this really interesting book. So tell me about why did you write this book called The Trump Paradox Role? This book is actually the result of a number of years of collaboration between a team of top researchers from both the United States and Mexican institutions. We essentially set out to do three things. One is understand why all of a sudden this issue of trade and migration was becoming a deeply polarizing political issue that Donald Trump took advantage of, and brilliantly, I would think, and tried to understand, well, what is the real material basis for his support? Does the support of Donald Trump really signify that we have intractable problems of trade and migration between our countries, right? And that the solutions are what he proposes, which is essentially building the wall and closing the countries to trade. And the second issue was, well, what is the real dynamics between Mexico, the United States, and Central America in terms of how we could rethink a dynamic towards the future? Is there possible to think about a trade migration and remittance investment relationship between these countries that actually has a lot of political support and raises income levels and reduces inequality across borders. Is that possible? And finally, the third point that we try to address in the book, you know, is how can we use this experience in 
North America as a way of thinking about the great convergence in the world, which is, in fact, a lot of the same problems we're having here across borders through migration, trade, are going to become increasingly important in the 21st century. So, you know, the interesting thing, why the Trump paradox title? Well, it turns out there is a paradox. If you look at the political support for Donald Trump, where did he win his election? Okay. It turns out it's from regions of the country that actually have the least amount of exposure to immigration, the least amount of exposure to trade. In fact, it's completely the opposite. It's areas of the country with the least impact of trade and migration, but that also have the worst attitudes towards immigrants and through trade. Donald Trump figured this out. He said, look, there's a lot of people out there that will buy this message and we can blame problems on migrants and trade. And I can use this to build a base of political support. And the fascinating thing is that it worked. So if you combine the electoral college with these areas of the country, you, in fact, were able to put together what he did, which is the sneak that win in 2016. It's interesting. We have another report just published on 2018, which actually shows that those areas of the country, Republican areas of the country that voted for him in 2016, but that turned against him in 2018. Remember, there was a 40 seat loss for the Republicans in 2018. It was exactly those parts of the country that had more immigrants and more exposure to trade. And the regions of the country that stayed with Donald Trump in 2018 and in 2020 when he lost the election were actually these areas that had least immigration, least trade with Mexico, but had these very anti-trade and anti-immigrant attitudes and responded positively to Donald Trump's message, right? So the good news is that we could have discovered that, wait a second, we have a much more serious problem. Immigration does affect negatively the income levels of Americans and poor Americans that voted for Donald Trump. I mean, the reality of it is Donald Trump's base of political support is in areas that are more white and who have relatively lower incomes. That's true. But the point is that it's not because of immigration. It's not because of trade that they suffer these problems. And attacking immigrants and attacking trade as the root of their problems is a lie. It's a big lie. That was, in a sense, the first big lie that he used to push forward this. So that was an important finding We've, because I, I think that today this attitude, this feeling that trade and immigration are issues that have to be addressed by building a wall and pulling back from trade agreements is, in a sense, the 900-pound gorilla that's taking over the debates on international trade and migration. When in fact, and this is what the second part of the book is, well, let's try to understand really what is going on between trade and migration. And the reality of it is that migration and trade are extremely beneficial to the U.S. economy. And by the way, immigration is much more beneficial to the U.S. economy than is even trade. I mean, if you look at the contribution of just undocumented immigrants, it's over a trillion dollars a year, okay, in terms of GDP to the United States, right? Overall, immigration is seven times that, close to seven trillion a year, is either immigrants themselves or children of immigrants, right? So 
If anything, what we find is that there's a huge complementarity between the United States, Mexico, and Central America. The United States benefits from this migration from these areas, and it benefits immensely from the trade with these areas. As, and what really ties it together is remittances, right? Remittances, which are what immigrants send back home from working in the United States, turns out our projections now show that in the next 10 years, there will be a trillion dollars in remittances to Mexico and Central America, all right, which will be significantly more than anything that the governments will be able to provide or even foreign investment. You know, so the vice president just came back from Central America and it's a great thing she did go and saying we need to go beyond the border. We need to look at root causes. But unfortunately, the topics that are being brought up as the solution to root causes are the same ones that we've had in the past, which is more foreign aid and maybe some more foreign investment. Well, we see that as a lost opportunity. In fact, what we find is that immigration reform, which raises the income levels in the United States, can increase the amount of remittances that goes back to Mexico and Central America if we do it in the right way is much more powerful to address root causes than anything we could be doing with the traditional things that haven't worked in the past, which is you know government aid and relying on foreign investment. Remittances are, in fact, literally hundreds of billions of dollars that go directly to these villages. And so you may ask, well, why hasn't it solved the problem so far? And the answer is that almost 95% of all that money that's sent $40 billion to Mexico, another $25 billion to Central America per year is all in cash, right? You've seen it. You go down the street, you people walk into Western unions, they cash their check, pay a lot of money for cashing the check, go and hand in the cash to Western Union. If they move it down, charge 10%. And then on the Salvadorian side, Mexican side, they go and take cash out. That cash is spent almost immediately on consumption imported goods into those villages. Almost none of it is being captured in savings, and that savings is not being captured into productive investments. That's the worst part of our, what I call, we have a vicious cycle of our relationship of trade and migration and remittances between the United States and Latin America. And we can do better. There are examples around the world. Southern Europe, when it integrated with Northern Europe, had much higher levels of migration even than Mexico and the U.S. had 50 years ago. But Spanish workers were able to send all the remittances back into a banking system in Spain that took that money, turned it into savings, and then invested it in all types of interesting productive activities. We're not doing that. In fact, in our analysis of U.S.-Mexico, this money goes back And it actually creates what economists call the Dutch disease. A lot of cash chasing few goods with very little of it being used productively actually will result in more people leaving. So we're literally emptying out these villages when we could be helping them to construct a savings and investment system that could use good old capitalist investment strategies to build employment generation. okay, And we have some examples in Mexico that is occurring. In fact, I think one of the ways you and I started talking about was this notion of using 
development banks, and particularly this one called the North American Development Bank that I was instrumental in building at one point, and it's still there to be used, and we are now beginning to use it for that purpose, finally, 20 years later, we can use the development banks to help build out the financial infrastructure in the villages to receive remittances. Now, because of these technologies, they can go much cheaper. In fact, there are technologies that we're working with right now where it's zero cost, no more Western Union, zero cost remittances directly into savings accounts, into savings bonds, and working with local microfinance and development investing opportunities in these villages and that can turn around not only address the root causes of poverty, but also the sustainability issues you know, that are critically important. Increasingly, migration is not just a problem of poverty, it's also a problem of environmental degradation. We need to invest heavily in sustainable development in Mexico and Central America if we're going to address the root causes. The good news is it's already built in. It's called immigrants themselves who not only contribute massively to the U.S. economy, who can be contributing a lot more if we take them out of the shadows and let them be legal workers and citizens, and they can then contribute even more back to their villages, into their home countries, once we have the technology in place to make it happen for sustainable purposes. Let me just end with this. One place I really saw this happening, not only in Europe, is in China. Inside China, you have hundreds of millions of rural workers going to the cities, right? Guess what? They all have bank accounts. The government has given bank accounts to everybody. They can send remittances from the cities back to the countryside for free in China today. And that money is being used. And by the way, there's more remittances inside China than almost anywhere in the world is being used for what? sustainable development investing in China. So the 21st century is really going to be about, the United States is actually well positioned in the 21st century, because unlike China, we are attracting immigrants from abroad. Many people want to come here. That's going to be critically advantageous for the U.S. with respect to not only China, which doesn't have immigration and will probably not have it, much better than Japan, which also is not an immigration country, or in Europe, where we far exceed the ability to incorporate immigrants, even though we have currently a broken immigration system. So in a way, the paradox of Trump is not only that he polarized this debate and has a lot of the Republican Party believing now against immigration reform, even though the best immigration reform was done by Ronald Reagan, right? We know this in 86. Unfortunately, the Republican Party is now turning away from that. The paradox is that it doesn't make sense for the future of the country to do that politically or economically. And what it does allow us to see is that if we take away that lie that immigrants are bad, that they're rapists and murderers, and that we need a big wall, we can see the truth that we actually have an incredible opportunity of collaboration to raise income levels on both sides of the border using not government spending at all, necessarily. Governments should be helping to create this infrastructure of savings and investment and entrepreneurship. 
Raul, I love it. It's really interesting. You you always have some really creative ideas. I like talking to you. One of the things I've learned when I looked at the issue of Central America is the magic, you know this, the magic number is 8,000. When a country, it's $8,000 per capita, the amount of migration that happens drops precipitously. And so many of the things that you're suggesting are going to help contribute to countries like Guatemala at $4,000 per capita, El Salvador, $4,000 per capita, and Honduras, $2,500 per capita. Get us there. I think that's those are all very, very interesting. Let me ask a couple of other questions. President Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as President AMLO, can you talk about President AMLO's leadership in Mexico? Are there policies in Mexico that are encouraging, I'm going to put that in quotes, migration or encouraging people in quotes to stay? Are there certain policies in Mexico that are encouraging people to migrate or not? AMLO is an important new political phenomenon, a populist, not exactly like Trump, but he has a connection with people through social media that has been extremely powerful for him. What's interesting, though, is that some people refer to him as an ideological necrophiliac. He's in love with ideas that died in the 60s, okay? Even though I'm obviously wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and I'm a, and I'm a lefty, the thing is that what's very significant is that you have this dynamic. For example, AMLO has some of the right instincts. He agrees that we need to create jobs in the villages. However, what does he suggest? Planting a million trees and doing it through the government. Well, what that ended up doing was people going down and cutting down trees and replanting the trees. Now, I think that, by the way, Vice President Harris had a good discussion with AMLO, even though technically speaking, Mexico in the root causes is not the center of the proposal of the administration right now. It's all focused on Central America, which I think is a big mistake because the reality of it is more migrants are still coming from Mexico than any country in Central America and will continue to come from Mexico for the foreseeable future. So we do have a root causes problem in Mexico. And the answer is actually to use exactly the same thing, remittances into sustainable investments in Mexico, not into a government program. And in fact, this North American Development Bank, we're test piloting right now the first creation of sustainable infrastructure in the villages to receive these remittances for free and turn them into savings bonds. And that actually complements what AMLO would like to do. It's not just giving away money to plant trees, it's letting the people control their own financial institutions and their own financial destiny, which unfortunately was not the tactic in the 1960s, right? But it is very much the tactics of the 21st century if you're going to deal with these types of problems. So I think that if the United States is smart about things, we could improve the relationship with Mexico and have them jointly work with Central America. Unfortunately, the Central American leadership is even less, shall we say, effective these days. The political systems are much weaker, and we really don't have partners right now from the point of view of governments, which is why it's even more important to look for non-governmental partnerships like immigrants dealing directly with the private sector and banks. If we can get the private sector to commit to turning the banking system a bit on its head instead of just paying out cash remittances, actually helping build this idea of savings and investing in the migrant sending areas. Right now, 
the big banks serve as vacuum cleaners of cash and invest it all in the cities or buying government bonds, safe government bonds somewhere, right? So what we're seeing in Mexico is, in fact, a network of savings and credit unions that are really proliferated throughout the country. There is an infrastructure there to be able to do this. We are now actually going to be launching a project with this new technology. And not only the small mom pops, there is a big government bank called Banco del Bienestar in Mexico, which who AMLO is in love with. But we think it would be much more powerful if you extend its reach on both sides of the border, offer free remittances as a way of getting people both in the United States and in Mexico into the financial inclusion dynamic and then be much more productive in terms of what these remittances could do. That's a great idea. You know, I wasn't expecting to hear from Raul that we needed to have more capitalism. I agree with you. And I actually think when we look at the migration phenomenon in the region, it's part of a larger global conversation. And I often think we don't consider that. After I did the exercise I did five or six years ago, I did a larger global exercise, looked at the larger, I'm going to call the forced migration crisis. We looked in Africa, Asia, other parts of the world. And there are 80 million people that are either internally displaced or refugees. And so we've got a number of countries that are absorbing migrants, like Colombia. Colombia, for example, just normalized 2 million Venezuelan migrants. That's a big deal. President Duque took a bit of a political hit for doing that. But at the same time, he also knew that the Colombians kind of owed the Venezuelans one during the 70s and 80s. The Venezuelans hosted hundreds of thousands of Colombians. So the shoe is now on the other foot. And so there was something to that. So I think it's really interesting, this issue of, I think, the example of Spain. I mean, I lived in Spain for a period of time. I'm aware of the migration that happened in the 60s from Spain to Germany, primarily, maybe France. And they sent money back. And you're right. I hadn't thought about that. That's really quite interesting. And by the way, the reality of it is the new technologies are available now to change this whole dynamic. In Spain, it worked because from the Middle Ages, they had banking systems. A lot of countries today don't have banking systems. In Africa, in the unbanked all over the world is very bad. But guess what? They all have these iPhones now, right? So we can create a new generation of migration and capturing of these remittances back for development purposes all over the world. And again, China is leading the way, but they're doing it within their country. We need to be able to lead the way of how we think about it across borders and across rich and poor countries. And I think that that's a really incredible opportunity. I'll just tell you one thing, this issue of addressing root causes and addressing it from the point of view of supporting investment and financial inclusion, I think is something that we can get both sides to work. You've been early and consistent on this, and I, I 100% agree with you. I want you to spend five minutes talking about what is the NAD Bank? How do we need to use the NAD Bank in this conversation? Because I think this is an important part of this conversation as well. You know, the NAD Bank was actually created during NAFTA. In fact, some people credit it as the or blame it for the reason we got NAFTA because it moved a number of Democratic Congress people to support it, starting with Esteban Torres. I wrote the original proposal and worked with the congressman. You know, and Bill Clinton loved it, and then he used it 
Remember that great bipartisan moment when they passed the final deal, right? The side agreements, uh, Democrats and Republicans came together in 1993, it created the NAD Bank. So what did it do? It was primarily focused 90% of the money along the U.S.-Mexican border to do environmental infrastructure, a big deal these days, right? Everybody's trying to figure out how to do environmental and infrastructure. Well, the NAD Bank has a 25-year record of AAA bonded $10 billion of reinvestments. It's actually one of the best rated development banks in the world at this point. It's in San Antonio, Texas. So it just got replenished under USMCA. And what we did, we pulled out the fact, because I wrote the original charter that says, hey, you're supposed to do non-border things too. You're supposed to do things like address root causes of migration. We wrote this in 1994. So it's already in the charter to do root causes of migration. So this NAD Bank, you know, which is this great facility of the United States and the Mexican government using their full faith and credit to bring private capital markets at very low interest to do long-term investment, right? This is what we should be doing. And they've done it. And they've done great work along the border. And now, like I said, they're just starting to do this non-border work in the interior of Mexico. There's another little story that's coming out in another book I'm publishing next month, which is that there's a U.S. side component of the NAD bank called the Domestic Window, which was set up to address job displacement as a result of NAFTA. It turns out the job displacements due to NAFTA were manageable, small scale. Everybody now agrees with them, including Thea Lee, you know, who now runs in the Department of Labor, who was at the FFLCL, all the critics of NAFTA, the huge sucking sound that was going to destroy the United States. Well, it turns out it didn't happen. There were just some job displacements. We identified them early. We were able to go into those communities and invest money in creating new jobs. The analysis now, 25 years later, is that it was successful. The point is, if we create institutions across borders that identify these problems like trade and migration, not as some boogeyman that is going to come and steal your lunch, you know, or rape and pillage the neighborhood, but and say, you know what, we can deal with people across borders. We can come to interesting agreements that help both sides, both through trade and migration. We can deal with the adjustment costs of trade and we can deal with the issues of migrants, not by keeping them in the shadows, but by embracing their ability to grow in the United States, grow wealthy, and that wealth helps the United States, and that wealth helps the countries where they came from. Hey, it's a wonderful world. I love it. I think you're onto something about this financial, leveraging remittances, financial inclusion, bankerizing without lack of a better term, getting them bankable or in the formal financial system is a big part of this conversation. I love this. Leverage the NAD bank. I think we need to think about how do we do something with Banco Bienestar? Like you said, I think if we could get them to get a banking license on the other side of the border. We don't even need that. We should be using the banks in the US to cooperate. And that's what we're doing. And by the way, you wrote a very good piece in The Hill that said that the NAD Bank should be used in Central America. Guess what? The NAD Bank could be charged by the U.S. and the Mexican government to do exactly that. Let's do this. Let's move a billion dollars into the NAD Bank and build the infrastructure in Central America for sustainable leveraging of remittances. That's what we should be doing. Okay. Great to see you. 
Congratulations on your book, The Trump Paradox. Very interesting book. I love the ideas we talked about on this podcast. Let's keep the conversation going, Raul. This is great, my friend. Very good. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 